Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. We're in Acts chapter 12 this morning. Uh, as we go through Acts, we're going verse by verse through Scripture. You can uh, find the notes in the Bible app. If you go to your Bible app and you go to the menu and go to events, it should populate our notes for this. And there's obviously notes in your Bible or you're in your bulletin as well. So when I go through a, a passage of Scripture and I study for it and then we come to Sunday morning, I'm always looking for a really... Um, clever way to introduce the topic. I'm looking for a clever way to introduce the themes or uh, the verses or the story. And when I got to Acts chapter 12, I'm going to be honest with you, church, I got nothing. I got nothing to introduce this. So we're just going to jump right in Acts chapter 12. Let's look at verse one. It says this, about that time, Herod, the king laid violent hands. Everyone say violent hands. I think we know what that means, right? Violent hands on some who belong to the what? So we're in history right now. This is Herod Agrippa I. This is the grandson of Herod the Great. Remember, we learned about Herod when, uh, when we're kids in Matthew chapter 2 or in the Gospels where Jesus was born. Herod the Great was the one who was in power. This Herod is the grandson of said Herod. Herod the king says, uh, the scripture says he laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Now, here's the thing. Oftentimes in history, people in political power will do things just to please their populace. Now, I know that's a foreign concept for us, but I want you to just wrap your minds around someone doing something just so that the populace will appreciate and like them more. That's what's happening here in Acts chapter 12. Herod Agrippa is no doubt... uh, persecuting these Christians because it ends up pleasing many of his citizens. Many of the political figures are ready to persecute Christians if it will make them popular. And that's what's happening here in Acts chapter 12. We move on to verse 2. This is what he does. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now understand, this is a new development in church history. It was common for people to think that the 12 disciples had this special protection from being killed. Up to Acts 12, you got to understand the church had been on a streak of success. They had experienced one really exciting conversion after another. Um, First, there was Saul of Tarsus, then the Gentile centurion Cornelius, and then this really highly successful work among the Gentiles. And last week, we looked at the church of Antioch. But we get to Acts chapter 12, and the ugly opposition has been inspired by Satan to raise its head and to come after Christians violently and with bloodshed in mind. James was not the first Christian to die in faithfulness. We looked at Stephen uh, a few months ago in Acts chapter 7. But the death of James shattered this illusion that the 12 original disciples enjoyed kind of this special protection. So James, he was one of the more uh, special close friends of Jesus. And he's often mentioned with his brother John and with Peter throughout the Gospels. If you're following in your notes as we get started this morning, Jesus promised no special protection for his closest followers. 
Instead, he warned them, plainly warned them to be ready for persecution. If you have your Bibles, go to Mark chapter 10. I don't have it on the screens because I was looking at it this morning. But in Mark chapter 10, in verse 35, John and his brother James come to Jesus and they have a request. Listen to what the request is. It says this, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came over and spoke to him. Master, teacher, they said, we want you to do us a favor. Jesus said, what is your request? And in verse 37 it says this, When you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you. One on your right hand and one on your left. In other words, Jesus, when it comes time for the kingdom to come, we want to sit in power with you. This is an audacious request, by the way. James and John were nicknamed the sons of thunder. Uh, We can kind of extrapolate from scripture and from other historical writings why they were called uh, the sons of thunder. It wasn't because they were meek and mild and uh, uh, filled with humility. If you had two boys in your home and you named them the sons of thunder, how would you describe their behavior? Right? This is James and John. And so James and John come to Jesus and they said, hey, we have this request. You've been talking about the kingdom. You've been talking about what it looks like for the kingdom of God to rule and to reign. By the way, they fully thought they would be alive to rule and reign with Jesus. This was part of their motivation. The Romans had occupied where they were living And so when Jesus talked about a kingdom, they were so filled with anticipation of, yes, I want to rule and reign over the Romans for a change. In fact, Jesus, when you get ready to set up your kingdom, um, how about this? I know, great idea. I'll be on your left. John will be on your right. We will help you rule and reign. Now, by the time we get to Acts chapter 10, 11, and 12, there may have been some misunderstanding still about what the kingdom of God really was. Remember in Acts chapter 1, they had to wait for the Holy Spirit. At the beginning of Acts, and if you look at the end of Luke, the disciples, when they see Jesus after he's resurrected, the question they have for him is this. Okay, you've been alive, you've been dead, we thought you were dead for, uh, for good, but now you're resurrected. Is it now time for the kingdom of God to be at hand? In other words, are we ready to rule and reign So to their request, this is what Jesus says. You don't know what you're asking for. Acts, uh, Mark 10, verse 38 says this. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I am about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering I must be baptized? And I love their response. Yes, sure. We are. And Jesus says, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup and be baptized with baptism of suffering, but I have no right to say who will sit on my right or on my left. God has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. In other words, if you are willing to live a life for Jesus, there will be persecution. The martyrdom of James that we see in Acts 12 is the fulfillment of this promise. Now, it says this, he was killed with a sword. Normally, in in the writings of antiquity, this meant he was beheaded. 
Eusebius is a church historian. He relates a story from Clement of Alexandria who said that the soldier that was guarding James before the judge was so, uh, was so affected by James's witness that he declared himself a Christian and also was willingly executed for Jesus alongside of James at the moment of his beheading. So the prevailing assumption at this point was that if you were uh, a leader of the Jesus movement, that the way that the, uh, the leadership, that the Roman occupation would help quelch the movement was to eliminate the leadership. So we read on in verse 3. Uh, Acts 12 and verse 3 says this. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, just to make sure we're on the same page, what did they see? They saw persecution and they saw the elimination of James, right? They saw the persecution and the beheading of James. When they saw this, verse 3, it pleased the Jews. He proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to the four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So seeing his popularity increased when he killed James, Herod sought to improve his ratings even more by going ahead and getting Peter. Now here's, there's a significant difference between the persecution of Saul of Tarsus and from Herod. Saul of Tarsus genuinely thought he was doing the right thing. Saul of Tarsus genuinely had a part of his life where he was so beholden to the law that he thought he was just passionately fulfilling his duty and responsibility as a Jewish leader. Herod was out for political motives. Now, Instead of executing Peter, he simply delays it by, uh, by putting him in prison. He wanted the Jews to know how, um, how passionately he was going to observe Passover. He wanted to uh, wait perhaps until the pilgrims got out of town, fearing that they would riot. He wanted to wait until he had the full attention of the Jewish population where they weren't sidetracked with Passover. And so he ends up putting him, uh, putting him in prison knowing that this, uh, knowing that Peter had miraculously escaped before he puts extra soldiers with him. We read on in verse five, verse five says this, Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So Herod had his soldiers uh, and his prisons, but the church had the power of prayer. And the outcome would be seen and easily decided soon. But in this moment, Scripture records for us that there was earnest prayer. And so for a few moments this morning, I want to talk about what is earnest prayer? What does it mean to earnestly pray for something? Much of our prayer can be powerless because it lacks this earnestness. So really quickly this morning, three characteristics of what is earnest prayer. Number one, earnest prayer focuses on relationships we care about the most earnest prayer, this type of prayer that moves God, this type of prayer that comes from the depths of your soul, the kind of prayer that is hard to articulate perhaps because it is, uh, it is a relationship close to you, earnest prayer, the ones that uh, move you to emotion or to tears, this kind of prayer focuses on the relationships we care about the most. At the end of the day, life is about relationships, and sometimes we can get to the point where we pray for uh, all of the things in our life and we don't pray for relationships, right? Um, so let me ask you 
this to help us focus our mind. Uh, what is the relationship in your life right now that causes you the most grief? Well, the Agrippa was persecuting the church. So first he killed James, right? And now instead of killing Peter because it was the, the, the feast time, he didn't want to upset the riots, he put him in prison. So then the church responded with this earnest prayer. And as we think about prayer and focusing on relationships we care about the most, which is the relationship in your mind, and you don't have to raise your hand or point because that would be awkward. <laughs> which is the relationship that causes you the most grief? Which is the one that keeps you up at night? Which is the relationship that gives you the most heartache? Which is the relationship that when you get a text from this person, you immediately, your stomach just does this number? Which is the text where you get the phone call and you just let it ring? Which is the, te or which is the phone call, or which is the relationship, sorry, that when you're going through the grocery store and you see that person, that all of a sudden you're taking a phantom call so you don't have to talk to them? What's the relationship that causes you the most grief? I would suppose and I would propose to you today that if, uh, that if there's a relationship that's worth uh, that much heartache and that much grief, it probably requires this earnest prayer. So for 10 seconds, I want you to think about which is the relationship that causes you this much heartache? And I believe that's the prayer that God desperately wants to hear the most. Because earnest prayer focuses on the relationships we care about the most. So it's the son that you're worried about. It's the grandson that you don't know where his life decisions are taking them. It's the, uh, it's the person in your life that you loved, and for some reason the relationship is gone now. This is earnest prayer. Um, we went, we went through so many different prayer requests this morning when we think about um, uh, people that have lost their lives, people who had committed suicide, people with heart concerns, people with cancer concerns, uh, the, the tragedy in Florida. What would it look like for you in, 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 in your space today, don't put it off till tomorrow, but in your space today, to say a prayer on the relationships that you care about the most. This is earnest prayer. Uh, secondly, this morning, earnest prayer demonstrates our heart's alignment with God's heart. It's interesting because as you begin to pray, it'll showcase that our heart cares passionately about the things that God cares about. John chapter 15 and verse 7 says this, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Now, if I'm being honest, I really like the second half of this verse, right? Let's start with the word ask. From the word ask, let's read the rest of the verse together. Ready, begin. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Amen? Like, I can get behind that. But the whole verse is premised on the first word, which is what? Say it together. If. So the whole verse, this whole premise of, of, John, uh, of Jesus speaking in John's gospel about you are the vine and I'm the branches, all of these things, uh, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. What happens if you abide 
in Jesus. What happens when his words begin to abide in you? First of all, if his words are abiding in you, you know the glorious byproduct of that? My words no longer abide in me. My thoughts don't abide in me because his words abide in me. And if you abide in Jesus, uh, we talked about it in one of our groups this week, where if you spend time with God, uh, it, it leads to more knowledge of God. The more time you spend with God, the more you know God, the more you trust God, the more your life begins to emulate him. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. What Jesus is saying is this, in the third step of this progression, if you abide in me, my words abide in you. By the time you get here to asking, you are so full of my Holy Spirit. You're so full of my words. You have been abiding with me that at this place in your life, when you begin to pray for the relationships that, uh, that, that you care about the most, when you pray here, it is a byproduct of what I desperately want for you in your life as well. And then it will be done for you. What we want to do in our life is we want to go right to the middle of John 15 and we just want to ask. And so we say, Lord, give me this relationship. Lord, give me this financial opportunity. Lord, heal me instantly from this sickness. Do all of those things. And we start here. And because we have not abided with God and his words have not abided with us, we get frustrated when we get to the place and it feels like God has not lived up to his end of the bargain. Yeah, uh, earnest prayer is this type of prayer that demonstrates our heart's alignment with God's heart. Thirdly, this morning, I would say earnest prayer appreciates the presence of a great and holy God. It doesn't take for granted the presence of God in our life. And it's a small detail in scripture, but it's important to see that the church prayed to God. And it may seem obvious, but often our prayers are weak because we are not consciously coming into the presence of our great and holy God, offering our request to him. Like there's a different tenor in our prayer um, you ever notice how differently you pray over a meal than over a relationship, right? Because over the meal, it's, um, it's almost automatic. It's almost traditional. Uh, the words come easy. Uh, the moment is, um, is low stakes. It's, it's, it's simple. And so we go through that prayer pretty easily. And then all of a sudden, if, if someone in our life is going through a divorce and you begin praying for that, we don't pray the same way we do over a meal. I think it's sometimes because there's a conscious effort to appreciate the very presence of God. So the next time we pray together at the close of the service, we're going to take just a few seconds before we pray to recognize the presence of a great and mighty God. And I pray that shifts our heart's focus as we pray. I've said this before, but most of us almost pray all the time. Most of us almost pray all the time. And what I mean by that is this, most of us find a, uh, an outlet for what would be our prayers, but instead of directing them upward to God, we direct them to our fingers on social media 
or we direct them vocally to another friend, right? So if there's something in our life that um, causes us anger um, and we're frustrated with something, just go out on a limb if that were to happen to you and you got frustrated with something. Um, you guys are looking at me like you never get frustrated. <laughs> um, maybe this is just for me. Um, and instead of praying, we will voice that on social media. We'll voice that in a text. We'll voice that to another person. We'll voice it on the gas pedal, right? We'll voice that in the tone of the next conversation we have, our frustration, when if we just shifted the audience of our frustration just a little bit upward, right? And all of a sudden we share our frustration with God. You just took a moment that could have been driven by the flesh. You had the Holy Spirit come in as a part of this uh, moment. And now you're directing that into a prayer upward. Uh, this is what the Psalms is full of. The Psalms is full of this, these individuals who went through these moments in their life where they could have uh, acted out in the flesh, where they could have acted out with uh, rage or anger towards another person or towards a relationship in their life. And instead of doing so, they paused and they directed their moment upwards. So the next time you're angry, the next time you're frustrated, the next time you are impatient, the next time that you are uh, driven to the edge, instead of voicing your concern, instead of uh, putting out that energy uh, horizontally, I would say, what would it look like to just shift that energy upwards vertically? And all of a sudden, we're appreciating the presence of a great and mighty God in the everyday moments of our life. This is what earnest prayer is about. Now, the goal is to get through the whole chapter, so let's go to verse 6. When Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. I've always appreciated this verse, that in this middle of this moment, Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. There's no sign of anxiety in Peter's life. Verse 7, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone around in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. We move on in verse 8, and the angel said, dress yourselves and put on your sandals. And he did. And he said, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And we get to verse 10. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left. Verse 11, when Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Now, this is an amazing passage, right? The soldiers, the chains, the guard posts, the iron gates were all nothing when God was with Peter and prayer was behind him. And so all of these things were, all of these situations were mitigated. Peter's walking out. At first, he's asleep. Then he's awoken. He thinks it's part of a dream. By the way, this is like the second or third time we've seen Peter um, thinking he was a part of a dream when there's a vision uh, coming to him. So it's a common theme in Peter's life. The guards, uh, the guards are uh, uh, taken care of. The iron gates open automatically as if it was nothing. And at that point, Peter says, oh, this must be God's doing. And we go on and we see 
Peter being rescued from these moments. We go to verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. And when they had gathered together and were praying, I love this scene, verse 13. And he, when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Now, Peter naturally knew where the Christians would be gathering, where they would be praying. So he goes to that house. Verse 14 recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not come open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. So just imagine the scene. Peter knows where they're praying. He goes to their house. He begins knocking on the door. They're all praying for Peter to be okay. Rhoda comes and sees, recognizes his voice, and instead of unlocking the door, she goes, I got to go tell everyone. She leaves him at the gate, goes back to the prayer meeting. This is what happens. Now, Rhoda is an interesting introduction in the characters that we're going to see. Um, the prayer meeting was probably both men and women. Um, there is some speculation whether this was a, a women's prayer meeting. Most of uh, historians, when you look at the verb tenses, believe this is men and women together praying together, which is just a beautiful sign of what the gospel has done in about a dozen chapters with the relationship of men and women in the gospel. They're praying together earnestly. By the way, uh, what kind of girl was Rhoda in verse 13? She's a servant girl. In other words, she was part of the class of people that would be a slave or a servant. So this implies that not just women were praying with men, but now slaves or servants were also praying together. Do we recognize the hierarchy that has just been destroyed by the gospel? We talked about it a few chapters ago that when, uh, when people were introduced to the gospel, no longer did it matter uh, if you were Jew or Gentile. This was Peter's concern when he went back to the church at Jerusalem. He said, the Holy Spirit came on them just as it did us. And this is a beautiful hidden detail of that reflection that both now men and women are praying together. Now slaves are also praying together in the same group. Rhoda was so excited to hear from Peter that she left him out on the gate. Let's just see what they say. Let's go to verse 15. Rhoda comes. She tells him what's going on. And they said, help me out, church. Read the rest of the verse with me. You are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept on saying, it is his angel. And so for them, they made sense of this story. Um, it makes me wonder, like... How, how far away was the house from the gate? Like, why didn't they just look? Right? Like, they're arguing with her in this moment. Like, you're out of your mind. This is the last time you get to come to our prayer meeting, Rhoda. Everything was fine. But now you're just telling us all this weird stuff. She keeps insisting. I love that. They're probably like, yeah, yeah, Rhoda, you're out of your mind. Lord, we just want to pray. And then probably above the voice of the prayer, she's insisting. And then they finally said, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, it's his angel. There was a belief in that time that there would be guardian angels, um, and so they used that as perhaps an excuse. But Peter kept on knocking, and they didn't really have an explanation on why guardian angels would knock. <laughs> Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. Verse 17, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. 
And then he departed and went to another place. Now the James he's referring to is a different James, not the one that had been martyred. And except for a brief mention in Acts chapter 15, this is the last we hear or see of Peter in the book of Acts. We know that Peter met Paul later, um, and he wrote his two letters, first and second Peter. But this is the last mention we have of Peter. We continue reading on in verse 18. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance. I love how the way Luke just kind of describes these scenes. There was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. This is one of the great understatements of Scripture, I'm sure. Uh, Peter, our Herod is probably furious. Um, his prized prisoner had escaped. He was saving him for more persecution to, again, garner goodwill from the people. We're in verse 19 now. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death, though whoever was in charge of holding them. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. So the execution of the guards was customary in that day if a guard's prisoner had escaped, and this is what Herod decides to do. We're reading on verse 20. You didn't know I could go through a chapter of the Bible so quickly, did you? Verse 20, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. Okay? Verse 21, and on appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. It kind of seems like we're at a different part of the story. It doesn't seem like these events are connected. What ends up happening is the people of these two places, Tyre and Sidon, wanted to make peace with Herod because of the impending um, catastrophe in terms of the supply of food. They needed food that came from Herod's country, and the crowd was motivated to please him. So Herod makes a proclamation. He gets dressed in his most impressive clothes, and he spoke before an audience eager to please him. And this crowd began to shout, the voice of a God and not of a man. In other words, they're trying to appease his uh, ego. Verse 23, immediately An angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. You talk about the judgment of God just coming upon Herod. Now, it's human nature for us to look for political deliverers. And if I could use this word, messiahs. And the people of Tyre and Sidon seemed to praise Herod as if he were a god in order to benefit, benefit from the decisions he would make in power. And for his part, Herod enjoyed it, taking the glory unto himself when it sh- that kind of glory is to be reserved to God. And as your pastor, let me, let me, um, let me just uh, love you this way. We cannot give glory to an earthly representation when that glory is reserved for God Almighty. And if there are politicians that would seek, that would encourage that type of attention, it is a warning to us as followers of Jesus Christ. The manner of Herod's death was so appropriate to his spiritual state 
In fact, I would ask you if you want, if you want to get a little bit more. Uh, so Luke is being very um, diplomatic in his uh, description. It says this, he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. If you Google Josephus, that's Joseph with the word U.S. are the letters U.S. after it. Josephus is a historian and he writes like six paragraphs on Herod's death. And it is disgusting. It was in my notes till this morning and I just cut it out. Because I thought, I'm not going to read that on a Sunday morning. But Josephus was a historian that took people who, uh, just like a news reporter would, and he took people's accounts of what was happening, and he wrote down what happened to Herod and the way that his stomach, um, anyway, yeah, just Google it, (laughs) and you will recognize the judgment of God on Herod's life right there. Verse 24, we continue as we finish the chapter. The word of God increased and multiplied. Can I tell you something? Every single time we see God's people persecuted in a way that the enemy of our soul would like to 